Welcome to The Truth in His Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I have the privilege of being in conversation with a producer and curator known for producing large festivals like the DC Funk Parade and PBR's Flower Bomb Festival to curating intimate and sophisticated events like Urbane and parlor-style discussions. He has exhibited a keen understanding of the DC creative industry. Please welcome BMO Brown. Welcome to the podcast. Well, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on and, um, you know, getting ready to spin a yarn with old Rob Lee here, a little Baltimore to D.C. Uh, connection. I like it. Let's get it. Let's get it. Spin some yarn is what you said. That's exactly what I said. I try to be showing our age, brother. Hold on. Wait Look, a minute. I'm, I'm 37. I have no qualms with mentioning that. For sure. <laughs> For sure, for sure. <laughs> so, um, again, thank you for being on the podcast. It's truly a pleasure. And um, before we get too deep into, you know, the whole, you know, me peppering you with questions, give us the story. Give us how you got here. Um, I mean, you don't want to go too far back, but give us how you got here into this kind of being a creative, like, in this creative space, being a curator, being a producer. Mm-hmm. Get us to that that point. Give us the story. Okay, for sure. I'll, okay, I'll give you the brief situation. So I. When I left Howard, I went to be a teacher. Found out, I went to New Orleans to be a teacher, to be a formal in-school teacher. Uh, and I was teaching maybe four months over a summertime in like the beginning of the year. I got fired a total of six times. Six times. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so a mentor at the time told me maybe I should try my hand more at informal education because the yeah. formal school system is more about producing uh, systemic adults, people who can operate in the world and follow rules. And I'm not a rule follower. So how could I be teaching in that same situation? So I started doing like after school situations in the nonprofit world. And like I tell people, nonprofit worlds uh, is basically practice. So they put you in a lot of positions to be successful, but you have to create your own pathway. So I found myself creating programs and curriculum uh, that often yielded with production. So like my book fair wasn't like the Scholastic book fair. We had a, a story reader in there. We had uh, reenacted characters. We had to create your own character, students making their own books. So I'd always take it a level above. Um, yeah. So when I retired from my informal education career, spent 11 years in informal education, I finally became full-time entrepreneur, which kind of leads us here now. I've been in business for six years as a producer, as a curator, as an event, uh, as an event maker, as a whatever, all the other titles that I have, I'd be forgetting from time to time. Magazine publisher, forgot about that. Um, so now here we are six years later, and it's still the same mindset. It's the mindset of, I want to educate, I want to inform people, but I want it to yield in a production, something that people really want to, to grasp on. So like, the very principles of education. And actually I taught uh, a literacy, not illiteracy, <laughs> a literacy, which is the disliking of reading, not the inability to read, but mm-hmm. like the disliking of reading. So I spent my entire informal education career training how to educate people on how to love. Took that, put it in music, put it in magazines, put it in art, put it in artists, and you got BMO. BMO indeed. Yeah. So I, I want to, th- I'll, I'll throw this out there because I like to uh, have terms or what have you. Like mm-hmm. I'm a marketing guy. That was what my background is, right? Yeah. And w- one of my, uh, my one of my buddies in the past, uh, he was like, I'm just a food blogger. I was like, no, you're an Epicurean journalist. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. And, and I think you might be a cultural impresario. Culture, you know what's crazy? Cultural impresario, that's a great one. I, Take it, please. Thank you. Oh, it's all, it it's all yours. I'll take it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs> Save more stamps. Uh, wow. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. You were an educator, brother. I like that. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about um, one of those first experiences working with, like, the creative scene in D.C. And if you if you would, could you, like, describe it, like, from your vantage point? Because everyone has oh, their... Yeah you know, their, their standpoint on, you know, if I'm talking about Baltimore, it's about the struggle. It's like, no, nah, it's just rappers. No, it's, right. it's, it's, it's diverse. It's a lot of different things. So tell me mm-hmm. about it from your vantage point, your first experience. That's a great question. The first thing that I did as an entrepreneur, I don't even know how exactly I hooked up with this guy, but there is a gentleman on the South side. His name is Tendani. He runs the Ward 8 Arts and Culture Center. Again, I have, I have no idea how I hooked up with this person, but I was his intern. 
Yeah. Um, and let's see, six years ago, I would have been, what, 27? So I already felt weird Oof. being a 27-year-old <laughs> intern. So, like, I was a little old for the things that he was doing. But, like, the project that he was working on was called the Bridge, Pro- the Bridge Project, in which that has now actually come into fruition in Southeast. It is a retail-slash-residency project that brings jobs and affordable housing to the area in a real way. Not yeah. the bullshit, gentrified, 10% of the building is under $2,000 in rent. That's your affordable housing. No, we're talking about entire communities. You can own your home type situation. When I was interning for Tendani, I used to watch him and the ANC, which is kind of like the junior uh, uh, city council member for each ward in D.C. Yeah. I used to watch them argue for hours about <laughs> what this project would be. Um, and I feel like that was a great introduction to entrepreneurism because here Tendani was sitting on the creative side, talking to someone that he had known for years that was sitting on the government side. And they were trying to figure out how we how they can create equity within the government for artists, which is something in D.C. that's been notoriously terrible. So I'm yeah. watching them have full on like four or five hour debates about it has to be on the corner of 7th Street and not 9th Street. It's got to be access to, it's got to be wheelchair accessible from 7th Street and not in the back because Sister Williams is going to be the only person that comes in on Tuesdays. So I'm watching them having these arguments, uh, which it would seem like when you think about like government funding, it seems so big. It seems so like outside of your control. Like I can't touch it. It's a lot of bureaucracy. It's a lot of red tape. But I'm watching this man. He's not a very big man. I'm watching this. That was shady. I'm sorry. I'm watching this man go head to toe, head to head with this individual. And they're actually creating something real. And now I've watched it come to fruition. And I've seen the importance of having that wheelchair accessibility on 7th Street. Although that's an example. I've seen how those micro conversations that were four hour debates yelling and cussing, calling each other nigga. And I'm just like, damn, you can't call a nigga from the government a nigga. Can't. (laughs) Yeah. So watching that, but that was a beautiful intro into entrepreneurism because it like it just it just illuminated the fact that like when you're sitting on this side, when you're sitting on the entrepreneurism, which the word entrepreneurism before you get to small business, it kind of indicates like you're doing a little some little mm-hmm. crime. Like you're doing there's there yeah. is illegalities in the word entrepreneurism. I'm working under the system until I can qualify for this other thing. So I'm watching this man very informally shape what is like the retail and residential future of a whole neighborhood. And he's an entrepreneur. And I'm interning under him. Now I moved on, found some different things, but just like, I think one of the things that entrepreneurs have to learn, especially when you're leaving the nine to five world to jump in full-time entrepreneurism, there's no time to play and you can't be shy. Shoot from the hip. Say what you got to say, because you already operating under this illegal situation. So you yeah. might as well just go for it all. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Like, you know, I, I had a situation um, yesterday where I was just like, all right, I got this money. I need to distribute this. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, but you're talking to other people in that kind of lane. Mm-hmm. We all know this thing of ours, right? Yep. And I'm like, this is not really my thing. I'm usually the one getting paid, not the one doing the other side of it. And I'm like, Yo, I almost want to go into. I'm just gonna keep this. This is mine's now. That was yeah. kind of the energy I had, and almost. I'm like, and I was like, because I'm, I'm like, I'm a big dude. I'm like six four, so it's mm-hmm. just like, oh, what do you want to do to me? That was literally right. my energy. But I was like, no, let's let's act accordingly. Let's keep a good right. name. Let's maintain that because there's certain things that when you are making that transition, mm-hmm. you 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 have to have merit and you have to have way. You have to have certain scruples and ways that you go about things. Mm-hmm. You have to. Uh, I tell my lady all the time, like, as an entrepreneur, when you mess up, you just got to sit in a room with your own dumbass self yep. to figure out the resolution to your mistake. Like, there's no there's nobody from the fifth floor that's going to call you and call you out. There's no HR department. Yeah. There's no underling. There's even to the point just like clients won't even tell you that you fucked up, that you have to be in control and center yourself. And like and speaking of that, like breaking that mindset is something that uh, uh, accountability within self is something that is learned throughout the process, but it hits you, hits you fast. But, and I think in working with creatives, it, mm-hmm. it's certain quirks that are there where 
I'm used to doing things like this. I'm used to doing this under the table. I may not have this documentation or my my things in order. And so you encounter that more and more. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think when you're thinking in a more visionary path, it's what I'm getting from you and, and mm-hmm. things that you've learned. And that's the way I try to operate of, all right, let's see past these menial things, these small things. What's past all of that? Yeah. And when those smaller things get in the way, it's like, look, I just throw some money at it. I don't have time to be in the weeds with this nonsense. Right. So with that, I, I want to mm-hmm. I want to talk about some of the events that you, you've put on and you've produced or what have you, DC Funk Parade, different types of events. Yep. Um, so what makes like those DC oriented events the, very unique? Like, tell me about those and, and why do they resonate with you to say, you know what, this needs to happen. This needs to be an event. I need to produce this. <laughs> oh, man. What do I want to say? Right? <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. I'm a transparent dude. So I remember I used to live on 14th Street in D.C., which was around the corner from Marvin. Marvin's is club, 14th and you, all the young black folks is there. I used to call it the Hunger Games because we <laughs> went to the second floor. I mean, goodness, niggas was spitting game. Women was spitting game. Like it was. I may have been in there. Huh? <laughs> I may have been in there. You may have been in there. Right. Right. Maybe. I hope you were successful, Rob. So um, there is a group in D.C. They throw these parties. They call the Grilled Cheese Socials. I know them. Yeah. You see. OK. So, you know, the situation and in which no shade to these people. I love black folks get together. We get to be social, have a good time. But when you go to these things like what's happening? Mm. Niggas is really just standing around eating grilled cheese or not even eating grilled cheese no more. And so one day I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in this environment. I'm like, man, DC, Chocolate City, Black Mm. Broadway used to have a history Mm. of like live entertainment, intimate moments, really complex artistry being at the forefront of what society was doing. Yeah. So here I am on Black Broadway down the street from Bohemian Taverns, which is one of those places that centered musicality as the prime point of entertainment. And here I am, not two blocks away, celebrating a grilled cheese. (laughs) And so, (laughs) again, no shade. Have your grilled cheese socials. Do what you got to do. Extra monster. Let's make it happen. I'm a Gouda man, right? Uh, I get it. Gouda is good. (laughs) Gouda is good. But, like, is it... Should that be the focus of what we are mm. celebrating as a culture and a society? Should we, when we engage with culture, should it just be passively? Should we just be standing in corners? And what I didn't see at DC at the time is I didn't see um, authentic and intentional ways that people were trying to connect artistry, complex artistry back with people and create like touchable and tangible intimate moments where people can really become fans and appreciators of Mm -hmm. artists. Uh, So I started just throwing events. My first series was the Speakeasy Situation, which is in this back room, Speakeasy of a deli at Capo. One of my first headliners was Alex Vaughn. I was so grateful for her. She won't tell you, but I'll tell you, I was her first headline uh, (laughs) concert. It was a great time. So when I I saw that actually come into, into action and I saw people who look like me wanting to be in sophisticated places to hear complex artistry, to have intimate connections, like let's keep running it up, keep running it up. So um, I started doing, I started doing those events just so that people like me who weren't, uh, I come from Florida. I'm not Mm -hmm. from Florida, but I graduated high school in Florida. And in Florida, when you go to a party, they dance. Like, yeah, yeah. if you walk out the club dry in Florida, like, you're the lane. You're the <laughs> way, right? But in D.C., it's the opposite. Like, if you sweat in the club, people telling you you're doing too much. So I'm coming from that mindset of, like, let's do a thing while we're out. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to translate that same energy uh, to my generation so that we could be, we could have our Love Jones moments. We could have yeah. our Mo Better Blues moments. That don't happen when you celebrate fucking grilled cheese. Again, no shade. no shade. No shade. But I, I ain't never seen Spike Lee make a movie over grilled cheese sandwiches. I ain't never seen it happen. No, I I I dig it. And you know, that's why in one of in, in some of those instances where I do this dive back into things like movies from the 90s, kind of mm-hmm. talk, tapping into that culture. I, and I outside of this podcast, I do a movie review po- uh, podcast. And nice. you know, people hit me up, you why are you doing any Spike Lee movies? Because I'm black. 
That right. literally is what I, what my response is, and they're fired. And literally, <laughs> I make I, I use um I did a what Jungle Fever, and I was just uh-huh. using that to troll my girl. I was like, look, that Stevie Wonder song, I'm gonna play it all the time. She's like, it's uh-huh. a bad song, and um, Mo Better Blues, and I'd never seen it. Yeah. So you know, and this was like last year when I saw it for the like, 30th really? anniversary. Yeah. And in watching it, I'm like, yo, this is the Denzel that y'all were telling me about that I didn't know about. I just know mm-hmm. Training Day Denzel on mm-hmm. up. So getting that, and I'm like, wow. And when I have the opportunity to talk about culture, right, I use doing this movie, th- these movie reviews to a way of doing movie screenings Yeah, in Baltimore. And, okay. you know, trying to do programming around that, celebrating mm-hmm. our movies, but there's only so many movies that were filmed in Baltimore. So in it, it's like, all right, let me start working in other movies that I think we need to show some them some more love. So, you know, this is a really, this is indicative, I think, of this conversation. The first one that I did was Meteor Man, which is filmed ah. in Baltimore, but is based in D.C. I was like, come on, yo. Okay. I was like, come on, man, this is us. But I was okay. like, you know, we can, we can do this, though. We can do yeah. this. There's that overlap. Okay, Robert Townsend. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> I got you. So... This this is a really interesting question based on what you had mentioned earlier. Define professionalism in the um in the creative sense, in the creative industry. And like how is that definition, if there is one for you, how's that changed from when you got started to like where you're at now? Because professionalism varies, you know, like as a podcaster or a person that's like in this whole content and so on, you know, I'm told I'm unprofessional at times because. I'm not sitting there just taking what people give me. I was like, no, nah, I want more than that. Stop being right. a professional. I was like, no, 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 no. That's a standard. That's like, I'm, I'm better than what I'm getting. And, I, you know, and actually advocating for myself, but that's been yeah. deemed as unprofessional. And obviously in the office sense, there's a whole different energy there. Where's your tie? Make sure your hair is cut, clothes, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So so tell me about that from, from your lens. What is like professionalism in like the creative space and how has that maybe changed since you got started to now? Whew. Okay, so <laughs> my definition of professionalism, um, professionalism is an output of whiteness and respectability mm-hmm. politics, right? Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is a system of rules that uses uh, decorum, some type of ethical decorum and developed by whiteness to somehow marginalize people of color or people who are in the margins away from whatever the main idea whatever the main thought is so what's been interesting about professionalism over these last six years is that uh when i was still in the workforce it was very much so j crew button up tie on wednesdays and fridays it was very much so i remember you old enough remember this when i was first going to the club (laughs) everybody had to have on like professional clothes you remember oh, that? oh no yeah i do I, I i remember this era of like button-ups and jordans yeah I, and i was just like what are y'all doing what, what is this i'm I'm there with my new york fitted on with the, with the wild white tee i'm like look i'm in a different i'm perpetually in 1998 like what are we doing yeah <laughs> and i'm not leaving <laughs> uh, uh, but uh it's interesting you, you say 98 um i'm perpetually in 05 but i'm here for it the thing is right so what has happened over time is that respectability politics has begin has begun to fade away. That conversation starts with bonnets in public. I know it's a wild thought, but like no, you start you. with bonnets in public and a debate that black women should be able to show up in spaces protecting themselves, although it may be different from how people want to see them and view them within a sexual, romantic, professional matter, right? Sure. So we have started to see, even with the natural hair movement, we have started to see the dissolving of this white standard being the ethical center point or the North Star to what professionalism is. So now that we have that out the way, there are some rules outside of how you show up, what language that you speak that that defines professionalism within this creative space. Because I am often siphoned within only Black spaces, I would define professionalism within that Black space. Please. Do what to say, do what the fuck you said you was gonna do. I pretty I pretty much feel like that's the only rule it was. If you say that you're gonna do something mm-hmm. on Friday, either get it done by Friday or communicate that you can't get it done by Friday. Flat. What you're wearing don't matter. How you tell me it don't matter. What time of the day you told me it don't matter. But can you communicate and can you execute? I feel like within the creative space. We see it like the, the the stereotype in the creative spaces that niggas is artistic and they're going to be ethereal and like ethereal and not necessarily have a 
grass one time and, you know, oh, I was feeling purple today, so I called you at 2.30. No, <laughs> deadlines are deadlines. Now, especially that I'm intersecting with, like, a um, uh, like an actual agency, like a, an ad agency, deadlines are deadlines. Expectations are expectations. If you can't meet them, then you communicate them. If you're not doing those things, like, damn professionalism, you're not being a good artist. Like, you're not, yeah. you're not being the good thing that you say that you are. Yeah, we're 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 on. You, you might be an Aquarius, bro. I don't I don't know what it is. We're on the same wavelength there. Gemini, baby, Gemini. Oh, okay, air signs though. My brother's a Gemini. You feel me though? You yeah, feel yeah, me. I feel you absolutely. Because yeah. you know, I I run into that sort of all the time. And again, it's this vision thing of like, mm-hmm. I see this. Y'all doing all of that, and that's cool. I'm already past it and doing something else. And you know, I can understand and kind of how you know we got to this spot. You know. It's just like, all right, ball was dropped, things happen, let's re-coordinate and let's get it get it booked, and we can do it. That's all that really matters. Yeah. You know, this notion of, and I'm, I'm going to use this term, maybe it's not, doesn't work, but this professional or creative ghosting of mm-hmm. you don't want to show up for a thing, and mind you, like, yeah. I'm doing this for my home studio, right? Yeah. But there are times where I'm booking spaces, and people just don't show up. So I'm like, I got to eat that. You know, I feel like this whole, like, the whole ghosting thing especially from creators and professional, that just... It's corny. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bitch-made. Like, and I say that like, <laughs> like, like you lack courage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not even professionalism. It's not that you don't even know the rules. You lack the courage to come out of your mouth and be like, we need to readjust yeah. because I have done a thing or I have missed the mark. Yeah. Like, ugh. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's like a waste of people's time and effort. And in it, you know, if it, it's no consideration. That's the thing. I'm I'm very much on a consideration thing. Communicating, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And if someone is putting in, because we, you know, we know the end result, right? So when people listen to a podcast or they yeah. see someone's finished work, like someone did a painting, they don't know that it took this person like 80 hours to paint this. Never right, that's right. The, the end result. So people don't know what's under the hood. If I'm saying like, yo, I might do two to three hours of research before doing mm-hmm. this. So if someone's going to ghost it, I don't get that time back. And I could have used that for no, another interview. I could have used that for something that's more beneficial. I could have used that to maybe, you know, do our tax, do my taxes. You know how we are. <laughs> still doing them. Yeah, st- just still working. It's like, yo, what's that? Uh, what's that form again? Ooh, ooh. I want to, I'd be remiss if I'm, if I'm talking about culture, DC and creativeness without with creativity, creativeness is not a word. Uh, Let's talk about go-go a little bit. You know, music, okay. culture. Um, okay. So culturally and creatively, why is go-go such an important part of the culture in D.C.? Man, you you probably should talk to a native, man, because... Uh, but you've been around. I've been around. I've been in D.C., which is like 14, 15 years now. And I, I just got to be honest with you, Rob. Please. Let me ask you, let me, look, let me ask you a return question. And say, okay, maybe, pl- I, I could be wrong, so let me do a little research. When's the last time you've seen a go-go band with all members under the age of 18? You're right. You're not wrong. It's been, it's, I haven't seen one. I haven't. I've been here 15 years. I have never seen a youth go-go band. I've never seen a music video or somebody's garage or somebody chopping down at a bus stop or somebody in Southeast <laughs> in the middle of the street. I have never seen a youth go-go band. I've known artists who grew up through go-go bands, and now they old. they like us. They're 35, 37, 40, 50 years old. Yeah. About, they're still singing the same songs. But <laughs> Go-Go is important to the culture of D.C. Yeah. Varying culture. Like blues is, in, is important to the foundation of Memphis, country to the foundation of Nashville. Jazz, New Orleans. But when we go, jazz to New Orleans, exactly. When I go to New Orleans and I go in the club, am I still hearing jazz? You're not. You're hearing jazz in a jazz club. I'm hearing jazz, jazz in the jazz club. I'm hearing bounce uh-huh. at the other club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I go to Memphis, I'm not hearing the blues. I'm hearing Glorilla. I'm hearing Duke Deuce. I'm hearing Three Six Mafia because Memphis is on a comeback when it comes back to hip hop, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying that all to say in a very respectful way mm-hmm. on your podcast, which I hope people don't come find me. Gogo is dead and it's been dead. Gogo is a dead music genre. It is still exciting. It is still exhilarating. It can still be challenging in ways, but I don't see any youth people. I don't see any young people in Mm -hmm. Go-Go. I don't hear any new movements in the genre other than Bounce Beat, and that came out 12 years ago. I don't see any new music stars. I don't hear any public radio. I don't see a mass uh, uh, adoption of Go-Go in other cultures like it happened in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. 
Go-Go to me is the foundation of what is a foundation of what DC culture is. But that does not mean that it has to be the future of what DC is. I believe that from Go-Go, from this independent music scene that's happening in DC, that's happening in R&B, that's happening in soul, it's happening in funk, it's happening in folk, it's happening in punk, like it's happening in all these genres outside of Go-Go. I believe there's another evolution of what DC music is on top of Go-Go. So we already have the giant. Like I'm, I'm saying Gogo was dead, but like I'm, I'm also thinking about that that Death Love and Robots episode where he had the big giant dude. Like, I saw that like, one. Right, so like we have a big, beautiful dead body on the beach, and somehow that's going to create spectacle and create tangents that will create something else beautiful. Yeah. But as of right now, I mean, you know, and you know, the, the old head's gonna come for me, the native's gonna come for me. I understand I'm a transplant. I don't have the same nostalgic feels. I'm not rooted in the culture in the same. And at the same time, Rob, I could be wrong. But in <laughs> my opinion, as a professional musician, yeah, as yeah. someone who produces records, as someone who puts money behind artists, I'm not funding no go-go album, man. I'm just and and that's and that's the thing. I, I think when we have these different like styles of music that have like a, a, a black sense to it that have like a cultural sense to it this is part mm-hmm. this is the official thing like one can say the same thing and you know locally i know i'm gonna get smoked for this but it's kind of the same thing with like baltimore club music but i think we are seeing it pop up in other places yeah. but we're not getting that credit for it like yeah what was a huge single yeah that's a baltimore club sample Oh, it is. There are some hoes in this house in Baltimore. So it's it's one of those things where it's just like, yo, give us our credit, you know, yeah. and, and it's like, put that out there. But I think if someone wanted to sample something, you see it here and there, but you're right. Like, you know, Wale, he, you know, kind of popped here and there for different things, what have you. You would hear certain influences of go-go music. But to your point, like, that's, that's 10, 12 years ago. And it's just like, what's happening now who who's going to be that person that maybe hears this and says you know what i'm going to be the 18 year old guy that's doing go-go music and i'm going to take it to the next level i hope so i think what you're saying is more so a challenge versus Mm -hmm. a shot that's what i'm taking from it Mm -hmm. if if go-go was still alive then it needs to grow and if not do we need to be able to evolve from it keep the respect for it i love the blues i love jazz i love bebop let's do more i listen to them every other saturday but it's not something I'm not about to be. Act, I'm not about to go actively produce a bebop album. So how do you like you know? And this is like broadly speaking. How do you maintain, yeah. cultivate, and cultivate the culture like, and in, in not in that corny way, like you know, we're talking gotcha. biology or something. But how do you maintain a culture while extending it outside of maybe the community is in to help it grow, to help it be gr- growing in a more purposeful, meaningful way? Uh, one of our two women podcasters, you probably already know. Yes, sir. So one of the podcasts that I have is Wake and Bake with Bemo, which every Tuesday and Thursday morning, we get up, me and a lady at the house, 8 o'clock in the morning, and we do just that. We challenge what is culture and try to push forward on what culture could be. It's a Black culture, uh, which has been kind of like identified this year. Kendrick Lamar has kind of taken the first shot at it publicly. Mm. Uh, but Black culture is a very interesting paradigm it's a very Mm. interesting paradox if blackness was created blackness was created to cast the certain people down while also propagating the white class Mm. therefore black culture was created so that we could remain safe amongst this designated casted class right Mm -hmm. so then in a lot of ways what we consider to be black culture is actually just a response to trauma so there are so many things within our culture that are just embedded in how we act and how we talk that have been passed down to generations that we no longer question. So to your question of like, how do we cultivate culture? I think our job as a generation is to take these practices, respectability politics is a great one, but to take these practices, put them in context of how they were used for survival in the past, and then break them so that we could be liberated beyond survival and Mm -hmm. go into living and thriving rather than just surviving. So like uh, uh, um, the events that we do, that's just just part of it. But what really happens is the... It's in the study. It's in the observation of the culture. It's in the in the in the podcast. What we are constantly doing is just analyzing what has happened currently, how that 
contain or how that uh, um, perpetuates this slave, not slave, this trauma response uh, that creates culture and then how we build new blueprints so yeah. that we can be the next generation of, of greatness. I love that. I, as I'm, as I'm listening, I'm, you know, I do this thing where, you know, ideas hit you and you're like, I got to get this down. I'm going to forget it. And I, I was thinking, and I was like, you know, we need to at least, and, and this is not, this is a middle step, you mm-hmm. know, this notion of like starving artists, right? We need to do more of this thri- striving, you know, striving going art. for things, you mm-hmm. know, tr- making these attempts. Like I appreciate the attempt, right? Yeah. More yeah. than someone just like, if you fail, but you fail spectacularly, you're going to learn something. You're going to learn a lot from it. And, right. and, and I think at times when we're being safe and we're pursuing these like ideas that I always ask the question, it's almost like that family guy episode when they're looking for the source of a yeah. certain joke. That's yeah. how I feel about some of these things. When I see something that doesn't align with me mm-hmm. I, I, and then people say, Oh, that's black excellence. It's like, word. Say, how's that work? Help me understand right. that. Yeah. And at a point, and I'll name drop in the history of doing this, this pod, um, me and one of my good friends, we did a podcast called unofficially black. Okay, and we would talk about you know almost barbershop style, but what's the up, what's the events of the week? These these different stories of the week, but we was we would talk about it through the lens that you know we're guys that don't fit the whole ter- stereotypical. This is the black experience. It's like yo, I travel to California to watch Japanese men wrestle. Yeah, that's the thing that I do. And it's like yo, black you a wrestling right? fan? I am a wrestling fan, huge wrestling fan. Same. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. It's you know it's it's like new friends are being made here. Yes. Um, yes. 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 So, which brings me, it brings me to this question. It, with regard to your work and your approach to work, mm-hmm. where do you find the, the most value? Your, where is your most consideration at? Is it the art or is it the artist? It's the, it's the art. Yeah. It's the art. Um, and, it's, and intentionally so. I tried my hand at management. And management is a heartbreaking affair in which your boss is a lunatic. Can you, I, I, I teach a music business class and every summer I use the same example. I was like, a manager is essentially the first employee of an artist's company, right? Can you imagine if the city girls were your boss? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and for some students, it's like, oh, it's lit. I'm like, yeah, it's lit until you realize you're not the one that's getting lit. You're the one that's providing the safe space for said litness. Yes, Right. Ugh. There is I. The history of black folks in music has mm-hmm. always been about the manipulation of the artist yeah. so that we can commercialize their product for everybody else's wealth except the artist. So yeah. I've always been and the way the music game works, I've always been a little hesitant about connecting myself to the artist because yeah. it always felt a little disingenuous especially if i'm not trying to be a manager so like if i'm coming on to do uh i create cassettes and like physical pieces of music for artists if i'm coming on to do your cassette production i don't feel right putting you on a 360 and taking 20 percent of all your merchandise and all of your streaming situations but that's how the music game works that's how you make money from from being a manager or producers being able to monetize off of the artist I prefer to try the new blueprint, which is to monetize the art. How can you and I, as an artist, if you're an artist, how can you and I collaborate to take your artistic genius Mm -hmm. and my ability to craft physical material to create something that we can sell and then we'll split the profit from that situation rather than splitting the residuals in your artistic and like trying to find a value for your artistic mind and the value for my business savvy mind to create some type of split. No, we'll just do it straight up. Like, yeah, it's goods and services right there. Yeah, to me. A and B. So I, I, I feel like my worth yeah. to an artist is more so on the collaboration of the art. Yeah, and I, I think there are so many different things we see, especially in like the music business or what have mm-hmm. you. It's just things that seem like vague and that it's anointed in such a way that, oh, you'll never understand. It's like you're casually making this vague. And you're yes. changing it so often. It's it's social media. It's Bitcoin. It's these different things that you guys are writing a new language. We know what it is. Yeah. But you're just trying to write a new language to make this like intentionally nebulous so you can ultimately pimp people off of their stuff. And, you know, there are so many people that come to me and hit me up. You need to scale. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I'm like, yo, 
I hear from people, I, I can go on the street and like I said, I'm six, four. So I'm a noticeable individual, but I can mm-hmm. go on the street and people know me. They yeah. like, seems like y'all listen to your podcast. Great. interview with this person. Yeah. And that's more than some nebulous. I can get, you know, hundreds of thousands of downloads and, you know, scale from that. But when you start looking at the pennies that you're getting from using these sort of methods, really, how's that working? I'd rather talk to someone individually, you know, have them be a sponsor and then get that funding and then do something that's actually a value versus this idea because it feels fake. It feels like this fake money that at the end of the day, you're in a deal that you didn't read through. Yeah. Yeah. And here's uh, the entrepreneurial process is a constant learning situation. Absolutely. You're in the advertising by or selling business as well for the magazine and the podcast doing the same thing what i have learned it don't matter how many how well crafted your email is it don't matter how well you can talk on the phone if you can't pull up on a nigga and pitch yourself it don't matter yeah. it don't matter if you can't make a connection in a real life situation no sponsor is trying to give you five six figures for something that they read in the email bro or some or some cut up and spliced YouTube video that makes you look perfect. If you can't have this real interaction mm-hmm. in real life, you can't shake a hand, you can't talk to somebody and convince someone through a process. Put it this way, put it this way, and, and we'll we'll end here because I think it's a good spot. Okay. It's it's like when you know I'm having someone come on and invest their time. Mm-hmm. That you you have to have pitched it in a way that it makes sense. Yeah. Because you know, out of the nearly 500 interviews I've done, right? I've only had three people ask for like honorariums. Mm. And there are people that ultimately, I'm like, I, I'm, it's not a method of being cheap and being broke or whatever. It's like I could budget for an honorarium. Yeah. However, it's just like how how popping is the conversation? How rich is the conversation going to be? And also, you're you're on the clock now. Yeah. You know, it's four hundred for thirty minutes, bro. Cool. I think I'm all set. It's like I notice you're not popping. You know what I mean? And I don't want to be, you know, that about it. But it's just like yeah. I know what I'm doing and. I vetted you enough to say, hey, let's have this conversation mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. in many respects is mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's kind of what it is. It's kind of what mm-hmm. it is. It's like have that vision, be able to see things through and just and I think I think in this in this conversation, I think you've thrown out so many real gems mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're I listening to this, it, people are going to be like, OK, all right, BMO, yeah. I got you. <laughs> hey, man. We try to keep it real, Rob. We try to keep it real, man. That's all, that's all we owe people. Candid conversations. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so with that, I want to yeah. dive into these rapid fire questions for you because, okay. you know, even you get them. You got to get them as well. So, you know, don't overthink them. You know that rapid fire. You know how it goes. Um, keep me short, Rob. Okay? Keep me I, honest, man. I got I'll you. get to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is one thing that you, This is not even part of it, but yeah. I've recently realized this. What is one thing you hate when you're talking to people like... I'd be curious to know more about. I hate that shit. Oh, you talking about the statement? I'd be curious to know about. Oh my gosh, it's uh, like I don't trust you. I don't have faith in what you're doing, but I want you to do this work real quick. Okay, okay, that's Let's what it see. feels like. One of my pet peeves. Uh, <laughs> okay, I just I was just telling this to the lady in the house yesterday. Who's right here? Which is why I'm always pointing that way. She's <laughs> right here. Um. Um, I think I'm over. It's giving and not da-da-da, not da-da-da. I think I think I'm over it. Cause what I'm learning is niggas can't first off, niggas don't read. I'm not saying that to say yeah, man, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Niggas are not reading anymore. A-Lover, and when right. they do read, they're interfacing <laughs> with books with their ears and not necessarily with their eyes. And what is that what is what that has done is actually like limited the amount of romantic language that I see Black people using. Mm. So now, instead of creating complex metaphors or even like uh, 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 similes or even like, uh, what's the thing when you, analogies? Yeah, yeah. Niggas would be like, not you ghetto. Or what? it's the ingenuity for me. It's like, ah. It's like, do better. Like, I'm one of the guys that I like to, I like to come up with things just because that's just the lane I live in. I'm a word right. guy. And I am one of those dudes that audio book it, but I'm always plugged in and I listen to audio books five, six, seven times. It's part of my process. I'm one of those dudes. So, you know, I always joke like, can you, can you say that differently? I I have different things that I just throw out there that are very much me. So if someone has talked to me, they're like, oh no, that's absolutely a Robism. 
That's yeah. absolutely ah. And but I don't use that other stuff. It's like, oh that's that's not for me. You can try better try better, you know. Better yeah. luck next time. I'm over the weak language. I'm over it. Yeah, just you know, better language. Yeah. All right. So DC create a culture in three words. They don't have to be a sentence or anything, but what's three words to come to mind when you're thinking to create a culture here in DC? Black. Mm-hmm. Renaissance sing. Strong. <laughs> Infantile. Okay. Mm-hmm. What would you this this is this is gonna be great actually? And there's a sub point to this one. Okay, I'm ready. Because I've because I've oh, never gotten a, I've never gotten an answer to it. Okay. What is your favorite piece of DC slang? Guh. Define it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, um I okay. My okay, 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 okay. So I told you before I left New Orleans <laughs> yeah, yeah. and came back to DC. Uh-huh. I came back when I came back to DC. I've been here for Howard, right? But you know, yeah. being in Howard and being in DC are two different cities, to be this honest is, with This you. is Especially true. Friend, right. So I come back to DC and now I'm in DC. And I'm at the South Side Boys and Girls Club. Uh-huh. And the group that I'm assigned in the Boys and Girls Club are the middle school girls. I don't know why they did this to me, but I don't know if you remember, Rob, but a 12-year-old girl is the most scary thing on this planet. Mm-hmm. Damn serial killers, damn the crazy folks in North Korea, a 12-year-old black girl on the south side of D.C. is the scariest thing that I had nightmares. <laughs> nightmares <laughs> about this young lady. Young lady named Letitia used to drive me nightmares. Anyway, I was reintroduced to D.C. through their language. And when I came back, the word of the summer was gut. And they would say, Mr. Brown, you got me guh. Like, ooh, I'm guh. And what it means is like, uh, like, I don't like what you said or done. And now I'm kind of like over you, like, uh. But like, at oh, the same time, yeah. they'll also respond to a joke. Like if somebody like pulled a prank on it, be like, ooh, you got me guh. Like, you got me good. Yeah. So I've always appreciated like, and it's not a word. It's just a yeah. guh. It's a, it's a guttural thing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you got me. Uh, all right. <laughs> also, that's almost a John Mulaney joke, by the way. He was talking about thirteen-year-old uh, girls are the scariest thing in the world because they'll make fun of you in an accurate way. Oh my god! John Mulaney is correct. <laughs> the, so, so, oh. so the the bullet point of this one is: yeah. what does Mo mean? Because I, I got nothing. Mo, Mo is, uh, Mo is a pronoun. So the you most, got pronouns of Mo. She, her, they, them, mo, mo. <laughs> 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 it's a pronoun. That's, that's it's great. Mo. That's that's amazing. Yeah. I threw out, I, I threw out some old English uh, pronoun a bit recently, and I was just like, oh, they, them, thou? And it's like, shut Thou, up. there you go. <laughs> like, you are stupid. Uh, lastly, this is the last one I got for you. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, I've, I, I will say, when I've gone down to D.C., I always get Jamaican food down there. I'm always able to find like Jamaican food. Like okay. it's a spot next to like, like Howard. I'm like, Oh, let's go to Jamaican food. So if you're in DC, you know, this is more of a recommendation. You're in DC for okay. an hour, you got an hour for lunch. Where are you telling someone to go? And what are you telling them to have? Oh shit. Bro. Okay. This might, might, might be for me. I don't oh. know. See, I got a spicy one for you. You from Baltimore. I told you some of my other Baltimore friends. <laughs> it's like I was crazy. The MLK Deli has an amazing crab cake. <laughs> Oof. Oof. That, that's political right there. I know. I know. I said that to her and she was like, mm. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I don't know about that. You're from Baltimore. <laughs> I'm pretty sure any crab cake on any corner is better than the best crab cake anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I got you. Okay. So I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. That's fine. You <laughs> see food, though. Rob, I'm going to be honest with you, man. The, um... Gentrification has hit our city hard, and the first places to be displaced out of D.C., the mm. first businesses were food businesses. And I think of this is place that I loved, loved. And when I heard they were cr- when I heard they were closing, I actually dropped a tear. I found I found out on a podcast and actually dropped like real tears. It's a place called Horace and Dickies. It's a fried fish spot. Again, mm. I know Baltimore got the yeah, I got the shit. No, we'll give you but that, a, huh? We'll give you that. We give you okay, fried fish, huh? There was a fried fish place called Horace and Dickies that was on A Street. Man, you go in there with $11 and get a fish plate. They give you damn near to see. They give you like a, they stuff the box 
full of fries. <laughs> it's supposed to be three, four pieces. It's like 12 in there. But it's all based on the mindset that, like, at one point, where Horace and Dickies was was one of the most poor neighborhoods for homeowners in D.C. Yeah. So, like, to go get a fish plate, and me also coming from Mississippi, I recognize the financial uh, 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 implications of going to get a fish plate. Going to get a fish plate real fast means maybe I can only get one meal. Maybe right. I can only get one meal for the weekend. Let me go ahead and go to Horace and Dickies. I can keep popping these pieces of fish in. It's real cheap fish. It's real tasty. It's yeah. fried. It's good. So that would be if if you could go in a time machine back to <laughs> old, back to 2012 and spend an <laughs> hour at DC for lunch, go to Horace and Dickies. If not, I mean, you know, there's some places out there. Kitchen Craze, nice little black-owned restaurant. It's nice. Uh, Lydia on H got a good little dinner spot as well. That's about it, though, man. I'm the wrong dude to ask about food. I eat the same nine meals every week. That's that's, that's it. I'm I'm one of those meal kit guys too. So it's like uh, I don't know. It's just like where where are the protein meals at? I just need to put on muscle. That's all I'm doing. You you try to get strong. See, I I, (laughs) can I ask you a question, Rock? Spin it, please. Hold on. Wait. Wait. Was that your last question? That was my last question. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, Rob. You're from right. Baltimore, right? Yeah, you saw it. Yeah, yeah. How the fuck did you find me? I'm out here, man. Okay, for sure. <laughs> I, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in D.C. on occasion for uh, Awesome Con, uh, Blur Con, yeah. and um, I've interviewed some D.C. folks or what have you. I interviewed uh, Chip. Um, I interviewed um, Elijah Balbet from Jogo oh, Project. Yeah, for sure. Elijah's my guy, man. I'm trying to make that that connection, man. He's yeah. a fellow Aquarius, so you know I gotta, yeah, sure. gotta rock with him. Yeah, yeah. Me and Elijah went to um went to Howard together. And I just was hold on. There was somebody, I think we were freshmen together. It was it was either him or this dude named Seth. We were freshman year, partying on the yard, everybody dancing, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you see you not know, a big circle go, right? They're circling around somebody, and everybody's like, go white boy, go white boy. <laughs> and it was it was either Elijah or this other dude, Seth, and he, they stopped dancing. And they were like, I'm not white. <laughs> I'm not white, bro. <laughs> yeah, those HBCUs, boy, I tell you. Like, I, I went to Morgan. I went to Morgan, so oh, I got so you that. you know. Uh, yes. <laughs> Man, you see the fair skin. That's a white boy. That, that boy ain't white. <laughs> look <Right>. closer <laughs> dive in it's, it's like yeah. you know it's like trying to explain it's like look man you look at Wentworth Miller that is a black dude that's, that's a black dude that's that. My, my girl went to school with him she was like no Wentworth is black <laughs> okay for sure Whew. so with that um, yeah. I want to thank you for, for being on this podcast this has been truly a treat treat of the week if you will and um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks the listeners where to check you out where to check out your podcast all the good work that you're doing social media website hey. The floor is yours, sir. Okay, people, get strapped in. There's a few things, all right? First off, I want you, make sure you follow me on all social media platforms at BMO Brown, B-E-M-O Brown. It's not a name, it's a reminder, and I'm not from Baltimore, all right? So under that, we got a couple things coming up. This weekend, funny enough, I know this is coming out on Monday, but this weekend we'll be at the Black uh, Black Ash Flea Market in Baltimore, right? We will be in your city. It's my second time. Spend a time in Baltimore. And let me, Rob, can I be honest with you, brother? Spend it. I was wrong before. I had stereotyped Baltimore to be a thing. And being from black cities, I should have known better. Because, like, oh, it's violent. Yeah, you know I mean, niggas is wild. That's like, and I, I, in my younger years, I was like, yeah, Baltimore is wild. But then right. I didn't think about it, but DC is wild. Nigga, Houston is wild. Nigga, Myrtle yeah. Beach is wild. Like, <laughs> it's wild. Wherever, wherever people are, it's wild. So I spent some time in Baltimore, loved it, loved it. I'm trying to make my way back more often. And I feel like the artistic community in Baltimore is a little more mature, a little more financially stable and ready to actually invest in the arts. These niggas in D.C. still pretending like they just like to walk around galleries and look important, right? Anyway, I'm sorry. Follow me, BMO Brown, at B-E-M-O Brown, all social media platforms. You can follow the podcast, Wake and Bake with BMO, Wake in Bake with BMO, that's also on social media. You can follow us or wherever you see podcasts. We're also on a little season break. We'll be back early fall with the next season of Wake and Bake with BMO. Also want you to follow Urbane at U-R-B-A-N-E. That is an intimate event series happening right here in D.C. It is the proof that the future of entertainment is intimacy. We try to create real connections between artists and audience members so that we can create real patronage in the, in the future. And then lastly, and most importantly, in this moment, we just published uh, the BMO Productions and Publications. We just came out with our first magazine. It is mm, 
a dirty magazine, mm, like you've seen somebody find, like, mm, right? A dirty magazine, we are centering the Black sexual experience and trying to progress the conversation of Black sex within our community. Rob, as you know, we are stereotyped as the most hypersexual people from without from outside the community. But as soon as you step a door in the community, you're like, damn, these things are conservative as hell. I may have done a, t- done two different podcasts about that, two different in- individual podcasts about that. About the conservatism of Black sex? About just uh, educating on Black sex and kind of extending out of it. These are what sex educators and... Yeah, that, that statement is very apt because it's like, yo, we need to, one, be informed and one, kind yeah. of stress the boundaries a bit. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I'm on, I'm on team straights. I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not a fan of the straight team. If I'm being honest with I was having a conversation. I'm not a really <laughs> big fan of men and I'm not a big fan of the straight team, but I'm also not trans nor am I queer. So here we are. <laughs> it's like you're, you're it's like you're on a bad oh. team. It's like you're actively huh? under 500. Always. We're the lions, bro. Men, straight men are the lions of life. <laughs> we are the Detroit Lions, man. Going 0 16. 0 16 one year, 1 and 15 the next year, and calling 1 and 15 a success. I'm so over straight men, man. I'm so over for real. We're we're mid. The midest of men. That's even disrespectful to men. But we created this magazine to have that conversation. Yeah. So it's it's for the straights. It's yeah. for us, it's for Black men and Black women to be able to start looking at sexual liberation as something that is beautiful and attainable rather than something that is distant from us and taken from us. So that's what the whole Dirty Magazine is for. Um, yeah. But yeah, BMO Brown, Wake and Bake with BMO, Urbane, or Dirty Magazine. There you have it, folks. I want to thank BMO Brown for coming onto the podcast, chopping up with your boy Rob Lee. And for BMO Brown, there is uh, art, culture in and around your city. You just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.